white Western woman, you know, joins Indian culture and speaks Indian language and cooks yeah. Indian food. And where's the sari? You know. Where's the bindi? All of it. Where, yeah, where's your sari and bindi? I forgot, you know, that, you know, we were supposed to, that was, uh, you know, we were supposed to put that on today to get more likes and uh, shares on, our, on this video. <laughs> Welcome to the Invisible India podcast. I'm Jessica Kumar. In 2006, I first came to India for work and basically never looked back. My journey took me through learning Hindi, living in multiple parts of India, and The Invisible India podcast isn't just a place where I share about being married to an Indian, being a foreigner in India, the language learning process, and cross-cultural parenting. But it is a platform to highlight the lesser-known aspects of Indian culture by featuring stereotype-breaking Indians making waves in society. So chaliye. Headphone laga ke suniye hamare saath. Sabko namaste. Jessica here. Welcome to episode 68, Ethics in Language Learning with Eliza Keaton. Eliza is an educator known on Instagram as Elikuti, where she creates resources for learning Malayalam. Eliza and I share a love for Indian languages, learning, and also digging into some of the challenges of being a white American person learning Indian languages. Side note, she and I are both married to Indian men, and we wanted to discuss the responsibility it takes to learn a language where there may be various power dynamics at play. We get really into some interesting aspects of Indian culture that we've noticed of both being foreigners learning Indian languages. There is also a part two of this conversation where Eliza and I discuss more on the responsibility of being foreigner in Indian spaces, colonialism, how that affects relationships today, language learning, and so much more. Before we get into the episode, I have to tell you something super exciting. It's about time. I'm finally launching a Hindi course coming soon. The first course will be Hindi Hacks You Never Knew You Needed. I have been stewing on this for a number of years and I'm finally doing it. There is nothing like this that exists currently. My courses are a reference point for people who feel lost in learning Indian languages. I do my best to responsibly handle nuances and point back to native resources, local teachers, and Indian-owned businesses who are specialized in various areas of language acquisition. I also give tips for my experiences of becoming fluent in Hindi over the last 16 years. In the first course, we will talk through the must-knows of the language, places to start, where to focus energy. And in later courses that I'm working on now, that will cover important verb structures, pronunciation and accent reduction, navigating social dynamics of learning an Indian language, and tons more things. You can see me as kind of like your coach helping guide you in learning Hindi. I am offering my first course at a discounted rate for subscribers to my newsletter. If you sign up for my newsletter, you'll receive information about the upcoming course and how you can get a special rate. Go to my website, invisibleindiapodcast.com, and you should see a pop-up asking you to subscribe to the newsletter, or you can scroll down and there is a sign-up at the bottom. Super excited to share this with you. It should be coming out soon. 
Okay, let's jump into part one of Ethics in Language Learning with Eliza Keaton. Namaste and welcome everyone to the Invisible India podcast. It's me, Jessica, and today I have with me Elikuti, Eliza Keaton, to share with us. This is a part of a literature and language series that we're doing here on the podcast, and I wanted to invite Eliza to come and share a little bit with us. You probably know her from Instagram under her uh, name, Elikuti, and she's going to tell us a little bit more about herself and why she has started learning Malayalam and creating resources for others in the process. So welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Namaskar. Yeah, I'm so thrilled. So you and I have had a lot of behind the scenes conversations about language, about responsibly engaging another culture, about sexism, about being a cultural curator in a culture which you're actually not native to. And I want to record some of those conversations that we've been having behind the scenes and kind of make it public. So, yeah. So I, I just let's just start talking a little bit about you, about the uh, the language resource that you're creating. And yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself. So, yes, I'm Eliza and I grew up in the United States. I didn't leave the U.S. until I was 21 to go teach English abroad in South Korea. And then since then, I've been bouncing between South Korea, the States, the UAE, and now Vietnam. And English language teaching has been a really big part of my life and my career. But languages in general have always fascinated me. I grew up hearing Serbian spoken by my step-grandparents. I studied Spanish in high school and spoke it often because I grew up in the South. And of course, when I lived in Korea, I tried to learn Korean and also learn some Japanese. So it's just something that's always fascinated me. So then when I met my husband, who's from Kerala, I was like, okay, sure, I'll learn Malayalam. And there was not much for me to learn from. So I kind of wanted to start learning and I wanted to make notes and share them on Instagram because I see a lot of people do these studygram pages that are like really beautiful. And I thought it'd be really motivating. And next thing I know, you know, <laughs> everyone's talking about illiquidity and it's just become this thing and it's this beautiful thing. And I just joke that it was a hobby that became self-aware. So, but I'm really grateful for this journey. Awesome. I had, I've been following you for quite a while with like from the beginnings of when you would just post note cards and, you know, different characters or with little, like you said, study grams. And now what your account has become is something much larger and much more inclusive of and so many different voices and so many different opinions and takes on not only Malayalam, not only uh, culture from Kerala, but also people who have totally different perspectives on that of like minority languages nearby or in Kerala from different perspectives from people who are teaching from different um, walks of life and from different just points of view. So I, I really appreciate what you've been able to do with it. And yeah, I think let's talk a little bit more about your language learning process. I think that's something that would be helpful for others. I think so many people are very intimidated, particularly as Americans. My story is similar to yours. I I didn't grow up in a very diverse community. I lived part of my life in the suburbs of Chicago and then part of my life in the country way out in the middle of 
uh, Northern Illinois, where the only other language exposure I ever had was to Spanish in high school. And we all know, you know, that we have very few Latino students, even in our school. And uh, our teacher, I don't, I think she had maybe been to Mexico once or she was a white lady. She was great, but you know, it was, she wasn't a native speaker and she did her best, but it wasn't much. It, it, it wasn't as much as we, I wish that we would have had. And uh, I also kind of learning a language was something that was very new to me. And I think very intimidating to me as an American. And I'm just curious how you kind of got over that and, and wanted to step into not only learning one language, but multiple languages. And how did you get over those thoughts in the back of your head? Well, I'd like to, to preface this first by saying that so many people learn so many languages because they have to, right? Like, you know, you look at India, people speak their regional language, maybe even a local dialect or a local language, and then they speak, you know, English and Hindi and, and, and things like that. And it's just nobody asks them like, oh, wow, how did you learn so many languages? So I just want to preface that by saying, like, what I do is not by any means super extraordinary. And I'm really glad to get the support that I do. And I think that for me, because I have the privilege of not being obligated to learn the language, I don't need it for a job. I don't need it. That makes me much more casual in my approach to learning the language. I do it for fun. And as long as it's fun, I study it. If, I, if it's not fun, then I take a day off. I take a few days off. So whether it's practicing conversation with my husband, watching a Mayala movie, you know, I'll learn a few words and keep using them, making videos for Instagram. So and. I think the biggest thing for language learners is there has to be context to what you're learning. You can't just memorize a hundred words that you may not use in everyday conversation. You know, what are the things that we learn quickly in a language? Hi, my name is, I'm from, you know, these kinds of things. So then, you know, learning different contexts has been really helpful in talking about going to the store or talking about movies or what did you do today? And because I just learned things very casually in bite-sized chunks and fun, and in, that's what's helped me with my longevity. A lot of people will look at the way I speak Malayalam now and be like, oh, I can never speak like you, which, by the way, it's... <laughs> but I'm saying you're seeing three and a half years of, you know, casual studying. You know, you can't do this in 90 days or you can't do this in 30 days. And I think people want to get to the end result right away. They want to be like, I want to be fluent. And it's like, en enjoy the language, enjoy the process, understand it. And I think that your interactions will be much more meaningful when you're working within that language. Yeah, a couple of points that you shared is, I think as Americans, because as we're looking at, at, at both of us who have learned Indian languages, there is this mentality, right, of, oh, this is such a big thing. This is such a huge step for us. And for Americans, really, it, it, it kind of many Americans uh, who are not a multicultural or haven't been exposed to different languages from a young age. Like it is actually a huge step. And as you as you clarified. There are most of the world is multilingual, right? Most of the world is at least bilingual, trilingual. And, and also multiliterate, like able to read and write multiple languages. This is not something that's unique to you and I, you know, people who've been able to learn Indian languages. You go to Myanmar, you go to uh, Malaysia, you go to so many places around uh, South Asia. You go to Afghanistan, 
you know, you'll hear people who are speaking Urdu or have, you know, I watch Bollywood movies or oh, this and that and the other thing. People, people are doing it for fun. People are doing it for jobs. People are doing it for as like a trade language. So there's so many different reasons why people will want to learn a language. And I think for you and I, there's kind of this one, not one angle, I don't want to call it an angle, that sounds bad, but just one point of view that we're coming at it from. And that seems to be kind of the sexiest or the most exciting of, you know, oh, look at this a white lady who's learning a new language. And I, it, the bar is so low for us that I think that's why people get so enamored. Um, I just, it was hard for me at the beginning because I really wanted to focus on the language. And then after I spent more time online, I wanted to focus on the idea of people are losing contact with their language. People don't have access to the language. But for a long time, even recently, people still focus on the love story. And I'm like, yes, I love my husband. And yes, it's his language. And yes, I'm learning it because I met him. But <laughs> there's so much more than just that. And I mean, that gets attention, right? That gets clicks. So it, it can be it can be a bit difficult, but I am glad that, you know, now three years in, most of the time people are coming to talk to me about, you know, language accessibility and mother tongue education. So it takes time. But, yeah, you're right. Like people really like that, you know, that whole thing about white Western woman, you know, joins Indian culture and speaks Indian language and cooks yeah. Indian food. And where's the sari? <laughs> you know. Where's the bindi? All of it. Where, yeah, where's your Saudi and Bindi? I forgot, you know, that, you know, we were supposed to, that was, uh, you know, we were supposed to put that on today to get more likes and uh, shares on our, on this video. <laughs> but then when I do wear it, it's like, oh, shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing that. You're appropriating right. my culture. And it's like, like I'm married to an <laughs> it's a really strange and, and sticky yeah. place to walk because it goes both ways, right? You know, both both parties are right about certain things, and it's mm -hmm. it's, it's, just, it's very nuanced, and you cannot have such a nuanced conversation on social media. The platform does not allow for it. It's tricky. It's very tricky, and I think that's one of the challenges about at least what I see with the what uh, you're trying to do, and part of what I'm trying to do is that we are trying to take the conversation to the next level, which sometimes, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with, you know, wearing Saudi and Bindi and making a dance video or whatever, you know, people want to do that, they'll do that. I have so many Indian friends who are doing that, who are doing it beautifully and I love it and I like their pages and I share their videos and I applaud them. But yes, like when we're, when we're coming from outside, I think the, 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 the best things that we can do are trying to help create resources or encourage people who are creating resources and bring attention and highlight to some of these issues that you're talking about, which we're going to talk about in our part two of this conversation. So make sure and check out the next episode for anyone that's like wanting to dig into. So talking about the whole love story thing, do you think in 20 years, we're going to be looking back and saying, are we going to be seeing the same thing of, oh, white lady marries Indian guy. And, you know, she wears the churi and the bindi and the sindur and the sari. And it's all over social media and it's a big deal. Like, are we going to be seeing this in 20 years or is it going to be old news? What do you think? I don't know, because the more you dig back, the more you realize that these types of intercultural relationships have always been going on. You know, I follow a lot of historical pages. There's this one friend of mine. There's this one friend of mine. Her handle is Lamp Glow, I believe. And she shared this picture of, you know, like a Turkish woman dressed up, you know, and I think that's always going to be in culture 
I mean, I'd like to think that 20 years from now will be much more integrated, but actually thinking about 20 years back, like how much have we changed since then? Social media is entirely is, is super pervasive. I don't know when we're going to get tired of certain things. Um, so it's really hard to tell. Maybe 100 years from now, it'll be different, but I don't think it'll change too fast, too soon. But I think it's just, it's not just about, you know, this culture and that culture. I think it's just the unexpected and the different. And I think especially as long in cultures like India, where there is still strongly held notions of who can get married to whom and what the expected, you know, stereotypes of certain individuals are, I think that'll still be a point of fascination for a lot of people simply because they haven't had that personal experience. They haven't gotten to know anyone like that, or they themselves can't imagine themselves in that kind of a situation. Yeah, I think that one thing is that we've talked about on other conversations about the internalized colonialism, too, of why is that such an interesting story of, okay, white lady comes to India, and it doesn't just have to be a lady, but then we can talk about this next. <laughs> why is it always the ladies and not the guys? They get the stories. But, you know, white lady comes to India, falls in love with a guy and or vice versa. White lady outside of India falls in love with an Indian guy. And then here we go with this whole uh, you know, interesting story of why is that so interesting? Whereas, you know, Korean lady comes to India and falls in love. Yes, that's interesting, too. Or an Indian guy and a Thai girl in Bangkok meet and fall in love. Like, OK, great. Why is it, do you think, that there's such a fascination? Do you think it has to do with internal internalized colonialism, uh, people thinking like, oh, you know, the, the British came and we, it's a love-hate relationship, right? The British did so many things, but they messed up so many things. And then they, like, how would you describe that? How, how colonialism kind of affects these relationships and the way that Indians perceive them? It's really hard because I can't really answer this question you know, because it's like, I can't think like an Indian person. I haven't had the lived experience of an Indian person, but I will comment that even in the context of language. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause like in, in the language perspective, I see people from Singapore learning Malayalam, or I see people from Malaysia learning Malayalam. I do see other content creators studying and they don't get nearly the amount of traction as I do because I look like this and it, it gets a lot of attention, honestly. And I do think it, it has to do with I don't think it, I think it has to do a bit with so foreign and so different. And then also just the joy of being perceived on a global level. Just like, oh, wow, this person is speaking Malayalam. She's American. This means other Americans are hearing about it. Wow. We're like on the map kind of a thing, because the global narrative is Eurocentric. You know, the YouTube channels that we follow, um, the, the TV shows that we watch, the history that we learn in school, it's very much Eurocentric. So, of course, because the world operates on this Eurocentric mindset, if we see the Euro, like someone from the West being a proponent of a certain cause, suddenly it carries more weight because in general, we have that privilege of us carrying more weight in discussions around global you know, contexts. And so coming back to the marriage question again, it's just I think it's that it's that, oh, OK, you know, we have this Western person that's married this Indian person. How are they going to make it work? I think that's the big question is like, oh, wow, they fell in love. They got married. But how are they going to make it work? And I think that fascination is is there, especially for people who 
have grown up in different countries, you know, because it's just, it is very different and there's a lot in there. And, you know, it's like, it's like why we watch certain television shows. We're just like, this is different from my lived experience. I'm really curious about, you know, is what's going to happen or how it's going to work out. Like, are they going to have a Hindu wedding? Are they going to have a traditional, you know, Muslim wedding? Like, what are they going to do? And, and, you know, will the girl do this? Will the guy do this? And it's, it just has a lot of questions and it's just fascination, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, I, I, I do hear this whole like perception that things in the West are so different from India. And I think that in some senses, India is both extremely modern and extremely traditional at the same time. You see people who are, you know, standing up for causes which we are still really stuck in, in, in the United States. And then you see people who are living out 10,000 years of history. Even today, the same way that people live 10,000 years ago, they're still doing the same things. They're cooking on the same stoves. They're still chanting the same Sanskrit mantras at their marriage ceremony. But in their pocket, they have an iPhone and they work for a multinational, like whatever it may be, right? It's so mind-blowing. So there is that. And and there are these bridges, of course, like some of these technological bridges or some of the like English is now the global language. So it's some of these other cultures are accessible, right? And it also makes Indian culture accessible enough to where we feel like we can understand and, and that. However, there is, I find there is this protective layer over Indian culture that is held by the English language. So you can get to know Indian culture just enough through speaking English. You can get to know a family just enough by participating, by eating Indian food and wearing the sari and wearing the bindi and all those things. But to really understand the depth and not even all of the depth, the traditions, but not all the traditions, the history, but not all the history, just by learning a language and by learning it deeply and by spending time with the people, there's so much more there. And I feel that many Indian people will often use that kind of as a protective barrier of like, all right, well, you, how much do you actually want to know? <laughs> right. Of let, let, let's, con- let's converse. Let's talk. Like how much, where do you actually want to engage? Do you want to engage on this level? Or are we going to engage right all the way on this level. And then I think, I think that's one of the, the, the great challenges is to really understanding Indian culture from an outside perspective is kind of breaking through that. First of all, wanting to break through it. First, I guess, realizing that it's even there. Second of all, saying, I actually want to get to know on a deep level and try to understand so I can relate to people. And then third is actually doing the work to get there. <laughs> and then fourth would be, I'm sorry, and then fourth would be, not then taking the credit that, you know, you learned all this stuff without the help of Indians and without them actually letting you do it. But yes, what were you going to say? <laughs> you discovered Indian culture. You discovered it. You discovered it. <laughs> right. No, but also. But, Which Indian culture? And, and that's the other thing. When we say Indian culture, like that's so vague. It's like, okay, you're a friend, like, like, yeah, be more specific. Are you a fan of Bollywood culture? Are you a fan of, you know, 
you know, like you work a lot within Bihari culture, right? And in, even within Bihar, there's like several languages within it. And, you know, like in the context of Kerala, you know, I learned Malayalam and I learned about Kerala, but within Kerala, there's these sub, you know, groups and these different, you know, communities. And, and it's only the size of the Netherlands. You know, if you think of all of, you know, the Indian continent and what's in it, it's just like, you know, so it's it's such a it's such a thing, you know, you want to appreciate it and we're not coming at anyone for wanting to appreciate it. But like like you said, you do need to do the work to see the depth of it and, and the nuance of it. And 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 at the other and on the other side, also, I think that enjoying a culture is not necessarily endorsing it. Something that I get often from people, well-meaning people, is that wow, she, see, you know, she likes this, this must mean it's the best in the world or everything about it is good. Some, unfortunately, recently in Kerala, there were a couple of dowry related deaths that happened. And I had posted something about it, voicing my, my outrage. Someone messaged me and I'm sure they didn't mean anything, you know, horrible, but they were just like, see, things like this happen, but you support this patriarchal culture. And I was like, oh, wow, this is a lot to unpack, you know, because I participate in the language and I talk about things from Kerala, does that mean I endorse everything that is Malayali culture? Not necessarily. And I think that's that's an important thing. So just, you know, some things, unfortunately, are just so politically loaded. So if I see a Western woman chanting in Sanskrit on the on YouTube, she might be chanting it because it's a beautiful language or that she enjoys it or it helps her meditate or, you know, things like this. But someone in the comments will say like, oh, see, the Westerner has accepted that Sanskrit is the purest language or the, you know, this kind of thing. And it becomes this endorsement kind of issue. And I think that it can be extremely difficult to navigate certain aspects of culture without the baggage that it comes with or without seeming like you're endorsing various parts of it. And again, it's nuance, which doesn't exist on social media. Oh, man, the whole the whole. Just participating versus endorsing. I, I wonder how we got here as a culture where it, it's very disturbing to me too, because it's, it's like, you know, we, is it because of the way that social media is influencing? And then you kind of have to like put a stake in every single issue. You know, when a couple of months ago, when the farmers protests were going on, people were raging at me on TikTok and on Instagram because I didn't take a stand in one way or the other. So I am not even Indian. I am living here. I'm a guest in this country. And the embassy sent an email out to foreigners living in this country saying, do not comment or create content or create a buzz or even just engage with this kind of uh, stuff on social media. If this is coming from my from the embassy of a country that I am a guest and they are allowing me to live here, don't you think I would just listen to that rather than try to get involved in some social media buzz? So, I mean, people don't see that what is actually happening behind the scenes of, you know, I'm not just some talking head on social media where I can just, you know, become this caricature. You know, I'm a person I'm with an actual life and other things to do in my life than other, you know, and, and I, and I think that that is another side issue. What you're talking about is this whole endorsement or wanting to look to you to think, what do I need to think about this? Because if I'm going to hear what you have to think about this. And so you see, there was this one actor I had interviewed a while back, 
Das Ahwalia, and yeah. he, he was sharing things related to the farmers' protest, but I think a lot of people were barraging him because, you know, he is Punjabi. And he said something really mm -hmm. interesting, and it really stuck with me. He said, yes, I'm Punjabi and I support my community. However, for the people who are asking me to comment on this or report on this, there are other people who are much more informed, with more accurate information, with direct access to people who can help than me. So instead of me taking up the space and attention that they would need to get their message yes. out, I would rather you just get your information from them. And I think that's something important. Yeah. Often people will go out and say something or make a stand about something or without having time to research it because it's such an emotional thing, right? It's like, oh, and you see everyone else posting mm -hmm. about it. You're like, I want to be a part of this too. But sometimes it's better to shine that light on an organization that's doing something to help or, or providing factual information or mm -hmm. having up-to-date research yes deferring to the experts yes. i think that is a we'll talk more about this in part two but very much uh, an important part of being a cultural curator and uh, a language curator someone who is a learner and and just understanding that you know we don't People try to put you on a pedestal, and I think that's one of the more intoxicating things about social media is that people tr people are putting you on a pedestal 50, 500 times a day, you know, with the comments or with the, oh, madam, what is this, what are you that, or, you know, wow, you're the best, or, oh, I can't believe you replied, and it makes you a target, too. So how do you uh, get around that? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I know you're a little more experienced at it than I am, but especially in this space where you know, learning uh, about a, a culture and a language which is, you know, is, is not your own, it's a very tricky space. So I guess one last thing I want to check in with you before we wrap it up is as we're talking about social media, as we're talking about cultural curation, when it comes to learning about different cultures, when it comes to adjusting different cultures, when it comes to learning a new language, you and I have both noted that there's there's just a rampant amount of sexism. Women are definitely held to a higher standard, receive a lot more hate for personal choices. And I don't necessarily think this is only around uh, white women. I think this really kind of covers women all around the world. And I'm just wondering if you could, if you have any anecdotes or any experiences or why do you think that is and, and how we can combat that? I think that in general, first of all, women do tend to use social media more in certain spaces. Like in the West, women tend to use it more. Also, sorry, I lost my train of thought. So, yeah, I think that for women, it's a bit difficult because men in general police women like in real life and on social media if you go on tiktok and you go to any muslima that has an account you'll hear about the haram police right like oh i see this much hair coming out you know and you know if you do this wrong or if you do that wrong like nine times out of ten and i don't i don't know where that comes from exactly i just I don't know if it's benevolent sexism where it's like, I'm just trying to protect you and making sure that you're doing things right. So you're not doing it wrong or getting the right idea. Or if it's something more along the lines of just gatekeeping, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but it is a phenomenon that I see 
where women tend to get a lot harsher criticism. One thing that I experience a lot as a female creator is mansplaining. <laughs> like I will put something in my description explaining a point that I make in the video, but there'll always be at least one or two people are like, well, actually it's, and I'm like, well, actually I wrote that in the description, you know? And I think that part of me wants to take it with a grain of salt and be like, they're just excited and they, they want to make sure, you know, but then I'm like, why, like, why are you here? <laughs> what, what's going on? So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Also the kind of uh, comments I got on my wedding video were very interesting. Just like, you know, things like, oh, men just marry Western women as a trend these days, or, you know, like, oh, you know, lucky guy, he got like a Western girl kind of a thing. It's just, it's, yeah, so these things are kind of difficult to navigate. And in general with culture, I feel that women carry a lot more of the cultural burden, right? So like so many cultural customs and foods and clothes are generally attributed to women. So when you have women that are participating in these other cultures and doing these things within the other cultures, it's going to be much more visible, which then leads visibility leads to attention, which leads to these kinds of comments and, and things. So especially if a woman does something wrong, it's going to be, you know, there are so many special slurs just for women in all languages. It's just like, right. Definitely true. Even just thinking through my specific context. When you see it, when a woman goes from being unmarried to married, there are many transitions that take place physically in the way that you look. Of course, you know, you start, you go in Bihar specifically and, and most of North India. You go from being like plain, you know, wearing cotton, salat kameez and dupatta and wearing your hair kind of in a, you know, ponytail or a braid or whatever. And then when you get engaged or when you get married and you start to wear the churi, you start to wear more fancy gold. Of course, you get heavier gold. You have the chain. You have the mangasutra. You have makeup. You start wearing lipstick. You start wearing gajal in these traditional communities. And of course, your standard of clothing also goes up here in Bihar. You know, you wear this, what we call it, chamaknewala sari. It's bright and red and colorful. And you can wear fancy jewelry. Whereas if an unmarried girl were to do that, it's like, ew, like, what are you trying to draw attention to yourself? So these, and I know this is across cultures across the world, you know, as it, even in ancient cultures, it talks about you know, women getting married and, you know, you get like the story of even in like the Bible, like the story of Rebecca getting engaged to to Isaac. It's like he gave her a the bangles and a gold ring for her nose. Like immediately there's this thing. But for the men, what's the symbol? What's the symbolism? There's not much. And in our casual Western culture, it's like, Women and men is like, we don't really put that much of a difference. But most of the world, there's a significant difference. So that's a really good point. But you know what's interesting that I've also noticed is that single women get treated very differently on social media than married women. I have a friend who lives in Bangalore. She's American. She sings in several Indian languages. And the comments she gets on her page can be horrifying. And it's just like... You know, there was times in the early days of Elikuti where I had to change my picture to a picture of me in Arjun because I started seeing these comments start to come. 
And then suddenly it's like, oh, that's your husband. And it's like, yes. And then they'd stop messaging me. And so, you know, it's it's a bit interesting when you when you when you see so some of these women who are participating in the culture they're single women that just have enjoyed it and they're they're putting on dresses and and like I said the comments are just horrific and it's just and it shouldn't have to be that I belong to anyone for you to respect me as a human being but unfortunately you know that's (laughs) cross-cultural that's cross-cultural exactly Sure. It, it is. It is for sure. You know, you get to have this sense of fear that, oh, you know, someone's going to come and scold me if that happens. Having a woman scold me isn't enough. Man has to come scold her. In-laws, the whole family system of protection. Yeah, there it is. Well, yeah, thank you so much for this conversation. I think we've we've covered a lot of good things. Please go and check out Alicuti on Instagram, that's E-L-I-K-U-T-T-Y. Uh, where else can people find you? I'm on YouTube, Learn Malayalam with Elikuti, and also Facebook on the same name. And uh, on Instagram, it's E-L-I dot K-U-T-T-Y. Yes, Elikuti uh-huh. is actually a common Thank you nickname that. in Kerala. So. Great. Cool. We'll be sure to tune in for part two, where we're going to get a little bit more into responsibly adjusting to Indian culture, Um, more about colonialism and more about the elevation of English language. So thanks so much, Eliza, and see you soon.